All right, we are back. I should note that one of the things we find least objectionable about President Donald Trump is his attitude about our forward military positioning overseas and the endless conflicts which the U.S. seems to be embroiled in. Trump seems to have an instinct that says, what the hell are we doing this for that we think has some merit at the bottom of it? We also think that when Donald Trump starts messing with the military-industrial complex, that that may be his uh, ticket out the door. We do note that as we head into the new year, Trump is presiding over a makeshift cabinet featuring six acting department heads. The LA Times and many others have noted that uh, the departure of Chief of Staff John Kelly and Secretary of Defense James Mattis, well, they are reviewed by many congressional Republicans and Democrats alike as the last adults in the room. Kelly said he'd done his best to keep Trump informed and that his tenure as Chief of Staff should be judged by what Trump did not do. Sources said Kelly persuaded Trump not to withdraw U.S. troops from South Korea and Afghanistan and not to pull the U.S. from NATO. I have to say, Radio Parallax has questioned NATO on more than one occasion. It does appear that the threat of Joseph Stalin to take over the rest of Europe has abated somewhat. And yes, that was the reason that NATO was formed to begin with. Anyway, let's, let's move on to lighter things. Uh, we like to do a good news item on every show if we can, and <laughs> this show was looking especially grim in that department. But here's one. The Week magazine notes that Alan Nayman, or Nyman, I guess, lived a frugal life. He wore old shoes held together by duct tape. He drove jalopies. But when the Washington State social worker died at age 63, he left behind an $11 million estate, most of which he bequeathed to charities helping sick, poor, and abandoned children. Naaman built his fortune by squirreling away money from his $67,000 salary. He worked side jobs, and he saved millions of dollars, which he had inherited from his parents. When he was diagnosed with cancer, he began researching charities to include in his will. Jessica Rost of Treehouse, a foster care group that received $900,000, said, What a generous, loving man. Albert Nyman, we salute you. Unfortunately, we feel compelled to balance that off with this item. Down in Gadsden, Alabama, Etowah County Sheriff Todd Endrickin pocketed more than $1.5 million in federal funds, which were allocated to feed undocumented immigrants at a detention center. The Birmingham, Alabama News reported last week that, the, that a Depression-era Alabama law allows sheriffs to keep unused jail food funds. And when it was revealed last year that Etrican purchased a $740,000 beach house with the unspent money, he said, and I quote, If it's wrong, somebody needs to change the law. It turns out the nickname Beach House Sheriff likely doomed his re-election bid last November. This all comes about because the federal government has housed undocumented immigrants awaiting trial in Alabama since 1997. Jail under Etrican's watch houses more than 300 detainees. The news reported that the jail routinely served expired and rotten food. Between 2011 and 2017, Entrican gave the county half the unspent dollars and pocketed the rest. And while we don't in particular wish for hurricanes to strike the United States, whether we want them to or not, they will, and we can only hope that the next one that strikes Alabama will take out the beach house of Sheriff Entrican. By the way, there's an excellent article in the New Yorker, January 7th issue of the New Yorker, titled Winning. Subheadline is how Mark Burnett, the king of reality television, helped turn a floundering D-lister into President Trump. We need to read from this article at length. 
but I'm sick of Trump. We're not going to do it today. Let's instead enjoy <laughs> something we try to enjoy just about every year, which is Dave Barry's year in review. In this case, his look back at 2018. I suggest we give five or six minutes to this, Mr. McMillan. Said Dave Barry, as you recall, we as a nation spent all of 2017 obsessing over 2016. The election, the Russians, the emails, the Mueller probe, the Russians, the Russians, the Russians. That's all we heard about. So when 2018 finally dawned, we were desperately hoping for change. It was a new year, a chance for the nation to break out of the endless, pointless barrage of charges and countercharges to move past the vicious, hate-filled, hyper-partisan spew of name-calling and petty point-scoring to end the 24-7 cycle of media hysteria. To look forward and begin to tackle the many critical issues facing the nation, the most important of which turned out to be the 2016 election. Said Dave, meet the new year, same as the old year. He notes that during 2018, normal, non-beltway-dwelling Americans simply stopped paying attention to current events. Every now and then, we'd tune into a cable TV news show to see what kinds of issues our nation's elite political media class were grappling over, and we'd see a headline like, Porn star Stormy Daniels, colon, Trump didn't use a condom. He notes, we're glad 2018's over. Once again, we're on the cusp of a new year, another chance for change, and once again, we find ourselves feeling stirrings of hope. Why? Why, despite all our past disappointments, do we believe things can really improve? Well, because we're morons, apparently. Barry looked back at January of last year and noted that the intellectual level of the national discourse soared when it was reported that during an Oval Office meeting on immigration reform, the president referred to some poor nations as, well, I'm going to use the term, s-holes. This upsets many people who find the word s-holes so deeply offensive that they repeat it roughly 15 times per hour for a solid week. Washington's consumed by a heated debate over what exactly the president said. The tone and substance of this debate are reflected by this actual sentence from a Washington Post story, colon. Senator Perdue and Senator Cotton told the White House they'd heard S-House rather than S-Hole, allowing them to deny the president's comments on television over the weekend. This is known as legal circles as the S-House defense. In February, Barry notes that there was another government shutdown looming. Congress, whose irresponsible spending practices have put the nation on the road to financial disaster, face a choice. It can either continue to spend huge amounts of money that we don't have or not. After much late-night drama, Congress agrees on a compromise deal under which it will continue to spend huge amounts of money that we don't have. This display of leadership solves the budget problem permanently, at least until March. In March, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson learns that President Trump has fired him when during an official visit to Africa, he's ejected from his State Department plane at 35,000 feet. No, said Dave, seriously, Tillerson learns of his firing via a presidential tweet, which says, Mike Pompeo, director of the CIA, will become our new Secretary of State he will do a fantastic job. Thank you to Rex Tillerson for his service. Dave Barry notes that a mid-air ejection would actually have been more dignified. And also in March, Congress averts yet another government shutdown by passing, with President Trump signing, a bill under which the government will, prepare to be shocked, spend a truly insane amount of money that it does not have. With the spending problem addressed, Washington then turns to more pressing matters, specifically the Stormy Daniels crisis. This escalates when Daniels files a lawsuit to invalidate her her non-disclosure agreement on the grounds that Trump didn't sign it. Abroad, the Russian news agency TASS reports that Vladimir Putin, who campaigned on the theme, a vote for Putin is a vote for not dying under mysterious circumstances, has been declared the winner of the 2018 Russian presidential election, as well as, in the interest of efficiency, the 2024 and 2030 elections. 
In April, President Trump faced with, among other problems, the continuing immigration crisis, increased Russian aggression in Syria, and a looming trade war with China launches a barrage of assault tweets that is clearly the biggest threat to the nation. Amazon.com. Trump is forced to back down when the retail giant threatens to suspend the White House's Amazon Prime membership. Abroad, the big news is a summit between South Korean President Moon Jae-in and North Korea's Kim Jong-un. And what observers see as a major breakthrough, Kim agrees to sign a letter of agreement acknowledging for the first time that he has exactly the same hairstyle as Bert of Bert and Ernie. May, the biggest story by far, is the wedding of American ex-actress Meghan Markle to Prince Harry, Duke of Sussex. The media giddiness level soars to DEFCON 1. The wedding cake alone gets more media coverage than Africa and global climate change combined. In June, Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy announces his decision to retire, creating an important opportunity for the nation's political leaders to demonstrate that although the public might have a low opinion of them as a group, it is nowhere near low enough. July, President Trump continues to have exciting foreign policy adventures, starting with a trip to Brussels for a NATO summit, which gets off to a rocky start but settles down once the president's advisors are able to communicate to him via frantic hand signals that NATO is actually our side. Then it's on to Finland for a summit meeting with Vladimir Putin. At a news conference afterwards, the president tells reporters that Putin, and if we can't trust Vladimir Putin, whom can we trust, strongly denies interfering in the 2016 U.S. election. Trump adds that he personally sees no reason why Russia would interfere. This comes as a surprise to the U.S. intelligence community and pretty much everybody else with an IQ of cottage cheese or higher. After a firestorm of criticism, Trump clarifies his remark. He explains that he actually meant to say that he sees no reason why Russia wouldn't interfere. Thus, the pesky issue of the 2016 election is finally laid to rest. In financial news, Facebook stock drops more than $100 billion in a single day, the greatest single-day loss in stock market history. Despite this set setback, Facebook is still worth way more than General Motors and most other American companies that make actual things. All right, I'm getting a signal that our six minutes is up. <laughs> we still have August and the rest of 2018 to, uh, to go via Dave Barry, but there's no reason we can't put that off in the next week's program. So we shall. Let's at this point jump to a bit of uh, humor, we think, that we like to include in every program, which is our look at the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now, I have to say that this has never happened before in doing this segment of the GB&U, but my read of these items is that none of them are good. Thus, we're going to refer only to items that are either ugly or bad. For instance, we would say that it was a bad week last week for inclusiveness with the news that organizers of a women's march in Eureka, California, canceled the event because too many white women might attend. Organizers said participants have been overwhelmingly white, and lack diversity. The decision sparked controversy in part because the population of Eureka is 74% white, but the group dismissed critics as victims of white fragility. Ms. Merlin, please make a note. On this program, we must do our part to avoid all white fragility. Is that possible? I hope so. We would note that it was also a bad week for what we would call nuclear humor, <laughs> with the news that the U.S. Strategic Air Command celebrated New Year's Eve with a tweet 
reminding Americans that it stands ready to drop something much, much bigger than the ball dropped in Times Square. This included a video of a B-2 bomber dropping its its exploding payload. Fortunately, the tweet was deleted. We'd have to say it was a bad week for reassurances after the President of the United States last week welcomed the new year with an all-caps tweet urging anxious Americans to, quote, just calm down and enjoy the ride, unquote, all in caps. All right, and this item I think needs a little bit of musical accompaniment, Mr. McMillan. We are scattered, we are Yes, we here at Radio Parallax do think it was really an ugly week for getting back to the garden. With the announcement of a three-day festival to take place this summer in upstate New York to mark the 50th anniversary of Woodstock. Sounds good so far, doesn't it? Well, the problem is no musical acts have been announced. But the the organizers are also promising TED-style talks from leading futurists and retro tech experts. Yes, 50 years ago they may have had The Who, Jimi Hendrix, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, but this year (laughs) they're going to have leading futurists and retro tech experts. And no, we have no idea what they mean by the term retro tech. Which is what? Telephones that used to hang on the wall and didn't show you who was calling? Cars that you have to get in and actually drive yourself? How about... Asking someone out on a date and then actually talking to them. Yeah, the possibilities of retro tech do seem endless. You know, we need to inject more science in this program. That always elevates our mood. Here's an item we think is pretty fascinating. For this, we are relying upon the reportage of the week, which also supplied those bad and ugly items. The week reprinted a report from ScienceDaily.com, which is pretty interesting. It noted that the ground beneath our feet is teeming with a diverse ecosystem that is almost double the size of all the life found in the world's oceans, which is a surprise. It's the conclusion of 1,200 scientists who are nearing the end of a decades-long international project to examine the mysterious microbes that inhabit Earth's subsurface. Researchers with the Deep Carbon Observatory gathered samples from hundreds of underground sites around the world, including diamond mines, three-mile-deep boreholes, and underwater mud volcanoes. They calculated the subterranean ecosystem could contain up to 25 billion tons of carbon, hundreds of times more than is woven into all humans. Some 70% of the microbes on Earth are thought to live in the subsurface, including many organisms that are unlike anything above ground. Rick Colwell, professor from Oregon State University, said it's probably reasonable to assume that the subsurface of other planets and their moons is habitable, especially since we've seen here on Earth that organisms can function far away from sunlight. Now, 40 or so years ago, when they first discovered these vents in the deep sea that had ecosystems that had nothing to do with sunlight, they acted as though this was revolutionary, that all the rest of life here on Earth was in some way dependent upon the sun. But considering the numerous ways that microorganisms can gain energy from minerals and things like hydrogen, I, I think that assumption needed to have been challenged a long time ago. 
I took bacteriology back in the early Pleistocene era uh, at the number of incredible ways that bacteria could find a way to earn a living. So I guess this notion has been, you know, lying there in plain sight for a long, long time, which I think motivates us to scrape around a little more aggressively on the Martian surface. Luckily for us, we have a spacecraft that's just landed that's designed to do just that, drill deep down into the Martian surface, and can't wait to see what they find. And we need to go out there and take a look at what's uh, going on in Jupiter's moon, Europa, and Saturn's moon, Enceladus. It is within the realm of possibility that beneath the surface of ice that coats both of those worlds, we, well, we know there's, there's water. We know there's oceans underneath that ice. And the question is, uh, are there chemical reactions take, taking place down there that could support living organisms? We've got to find out. And, you know, something else we've we got to do is address the issue of global warming. There's some new data from NASA and, uh, and NOAA that's, that's pretty disturbing. Rising temperatures, in fact, are wreaking havoc on the Arctic and Antarctic. They're melting once pristine ice sheets and killing wildlife. The report by NASA identifies significant melting in a group of glaciers in East Antarctica. This is a region previously deemed stable and unaffected by climate change. But satellite imagery is suggesting that the height of glaciers feeding Vicennes Bay, an area due south of Australia, has dropped by nearly 10 feet since 2008. 10 feet in 10 years. And the speed of melting is accelerating. The Vicennes Bay glaciers are crucial because they block the inland Aurora and Wilkes ice basins from falling into the sea. If both basins collapse, sea levels could rise by up to 92 feet. I find this especially disturbing since I realize that where I'm sitting right now in my home is apparently about 84 feet above sea level. Time to add the second story. <laughs> Thank you for that. NOAA, for their part, took a look at the Arctic and noted that the world's northernmost region is now so warm that it is shedding ice even in the Arctic winter. The Bering Sea lost an area of ice the size of Idaho during two weeks last February. This is promoting toxic algal blooms, which is typically a warm water phenomenon. These are increasing in the region and fatally poisoning seals, walruses, and whales. NOAA researcher Emily Osborne said the Arctic is experiencing the most unprecedented transition in human history. Well, the only nice thing I can say about that story is, is that even if the oceans did raise 92 feet, I won't be here to see it. But if you're listening to this and you're 17 years of age, you might not be so lucky. We will, in 2019, try to um, make some suggestions about what all of us might be able to do to avert this catastrophe because, let's face it, Governments and business are not getting it done. Now, last week's program, we were complimenting the American sport of football. I don't want to go too far on this. Uh, they held a college football championship right here in the Bay Area, in Santa Clara, which is really a great place for it because, you know, college football fans from all over the nation are bound to converge on Santa Clara. Santa Clara, of course, is backed up by nearby San Jose, I guess this explains why the, the stadium actually failed to sell out. I do feel a bit for San Jose. It's kind of the Rodney Dangerfield of American cities. I will wager that if you took 100 randomly selected Americans and asked them to list maybe the 20 most significant cities in America, I'm not sure any of them except maybe a few techies would even name San Jose. 
Anyway, this explains why the ticket prices for this event actually cratered. They started out at 475 and they went as low as $133 in the secondary market, which evidently is how they got within about 1,000 seats of selling out, with something like four or 5,000 people buying tickets at the last minute. Anyway, as far as I understand it, one college team beat another college team, and now they're the college champions. If the truth be told, two professional football teams engaged each other, and one of them won. We pretend that the participants are student-athletes. They're athletes, but the student part's a little questionable. All right, we've used two of the three magazines we rely upon in this program to date, The Week and The Economist, but let's go to our third, New Scientist. Let's do some miscellaneous items from the feedback section, shall we? Here's one we just can't resist. Noted New Scientist, a startlingly human-like robot was caught on Russian TV performing at a state-sponsored technology event last month. Viewers were amazed as the android, reportedly the most advanced in the world, walked, talked, and danced. Unfortunately, cynical viewers soon pointed out that the robot looked uncannily similar to a 3,000-pound, to a $5,000 costume which is available online. Yes, the magazine notes the most advanced robot in the world had a human heart as well as human arms, legs, and everything else, which they noted certainly saves on batteries. They note that humans masquerading as robots are a burgeoning market in the UK. Titan the Robot, or to give a fuller name, Titan the Impressively Expensive Robot costume, has played a heady tour of the nation's shopping centers and bar mitzvahs, performing feats that would be considered impressive for a robot, if a robot did them. Sadly, notes the feedback section, it's only a matter of time before creeping automation replaces these human performers with robots pretending to be humans, pretending to be robots, pretending to be humans. We agree. That's, that's surely inevitable. And from the truly out of deep left field, we have this. Steve Bannon, former strategist of U.S. President Donald Trump, has found many of his speaking engagements canceled in the face of public opposition. But the latest may sting more than most. Organizers of a U.S. conference on sex robots, lambasted by many people as dehumanizing, decided that a Congress with Bannon was a step too far. What's <laughs> new scientist? So what Steve Bannon knows about sex robots will, for now, and hopefully forever, remain a mystery. <laughs> Another one we can't resist. The magazine notes that the new year can be a quiet time in the office, but nowhere is that more so than in Mozambique. The nation's government said it has identified 30,000 ghost workers in the civil service, costing about 100 million pounds a year. Some ghost workers were genuine employees, but were being paid to do non-existent jobs. Boy, this sounds like the federal government, though, doesn't it? Well, and perhaps the state government as well. They note that others were dead or fictitious yet corporeal enough to draw a salary every month. Ministers used a proof-of-life test to root out fake staff. The magazine says no details, but we do hope it involved Blade Runner-style questions about turtles in the desert. A spokesman told journalists that from now on, only one employee would be hired for every three that left the civil service. The magazine asks, is this the future? The phenomenon of inconsequential jobs is well known in the West which has dogmatically stuck to the idea of full employment and a 40-hour work week, despite plateauing productivity, 
They note that, as anyone knows, doing a job in half the time simply means looking busy for the other half. Instead of purging these enterprising non-workers, Mozambique should simply rebrand it as the world's greatest universal and basic income experiment. And let's close with their The Last Word section. The question was asked, of what single dish could I make that would provide all my nutritional needs forevermore? The responders noted that the only dishes that will do this are soups, stews, and casseroles. They said that what the reader might consider is the creation of a perpetual stew. Once the mixture starts to boil, it is reduced to a simmer and never turned off. Every day you would add more vegetables and protein, striving for variety. This was a common cooking method in the Middle Ages, and there are contemporary examples that have lasted for more than 60 years. I did not know that. To be safe, it is important to never cool and reheat the stew, but to constantly keep it hot. As to whether a vegetarian or vegan option exists, they note that humans do require vitamin B12, and the only readily available sources are from animals in meat, fish, eggs, and dairy products. It would be possible to fortify the stew with B12 additives, but these are often derived from animal sources also. A second respondent said that all over the world, people eat a variant of a vegetarian meal containing a legume, a grain, and a fruit or green leaf to provide vitamin C. Baked beans on toast with a grilled tomato is a complete meal, as is hummus with pita bread and olives. Those in the go can have a peanut butter sandwich with an apple to follow. In Italy, there's pea risotto with lettuce. Native American people cooked succotash, a dish of beans, maize, and squash. And in India, lentils, rice, and fenugreek leaves have been sustaining people for centuries. As I close the program, I realize I don't know a damn thing about fenugreek. But rest assured, I'll do some research before next week's program. We'll also try in the next week to take a look at that documentary on Dark Money, which I think is on Netflix. While I'm doing that, I hope to also check out uh, an American Masters series on the subject of the late Ricky Jay. Perhaps you've seen it. The title is Deceptive Practice, The Mysteries and Mentors of Ricky Jay. After took a look at Bob Einstein, Super Dave Osborne, uh, on, on uh, courtesy of YouTube. I pulled up a program on Ricky Jay and was, well, just amazed. Two quite different individuals, I would say, uh, the late Bob Einstein and Ricky Jay. We lost both of them uh, last month. But luckily for all of us, their work is still available for us to admire. That is something I do appreciate about uh, our modern world of tech, even if there won't be a TED Talk about it at you know Woodstock next, uh, next summer. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. We do text each other. Let's see if we can keep Mark Zuckerberg out of it, shall we? <laughs>